<clears throat> okay, I'm Mark, and I'm a nasal learner. I need to be able to smell the subject that I'm studying in order to understand it properly. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Hello, 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 and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. I'm Mike. I'm a learning designer at the Open University, a man with a microphone, an imposter syndrome incarnate, and I am joined by my capable co-host. Hello, I'm Mark Childs. I'm a senior learning designer at Durham University. So today we are answering the bloody stupid question, are learning styles the boss level zombie of neuromyths? And to help us do that, and by help us do it, I mean basically do the entire job for us, we have the wonderful, the fabulous... Da, 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 da. Mary Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to leave that pause in in the edit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Mary Jacob, and I'm part of the Learning and Teaching Enhancement Unit at Aberystwyth University here in Wales. Um, and I'm a lecturer in learning and teaching. So I specialize in pedagogy and run the postgraduate certificate in teaching in higher education. Um, and I also design training sessions for all teaching staff on various pedagogical subjects. So I love Pedagodzilla. And before I came here, I was a lecturer in Chinese language and literature at the University of California at Davis. And I'm especially keen on any lessons that we can learn from cognitive science that help us to teach more effectively. Uh, if you're connected at all to the little blue birdie online thing, connected in any way on Twitter, you may recognise uh, Mary from her fabulous e-learning digests and things that she shares on a regular basis. She is a font of good uh, online e-learning resources uh, and a cracking person to follow. Anyway, let's go to the first part of the show where we break down our question, are learning styles the boss-level zombies of neuromyths? Part one, the question. So uh, our question has a couple of components. We have zombies, we have learning styles, and we also actually have neuromyths, which we might need to unpack a bit. So let's start with the fun bit. Let's start with zombies, the shambling undead. What is everybody's quintessential uh, zombie, I suppose, from pop culture? Mary? Well, I always think of Shaun of the Dead. Um, and I also like... Um, I really love Les Revenants, the French series of Returned. Um, those were very nice zombies. They were trying not to harm living people for the most part. Um, but the thing that I love about zombies is that they reanimate and they come back and they try to eat our brains, but they're kind of slow moving. They're not very smart. They're hard to kill. You knock them down. They jump back up again. You know. Um, so, but the really interesting thing is that they're contagious. So if they bite us, then our brains turn to mush and we start turning into unthinking beings, stumbling around blindly and causing harm. They can't help it, but they must be stopped. God, that's the contagious element, actually, that I suppose I'm, I find more scary now that we've lived through or that we are living through a pandemic. Like I feel more aware of a zombie encroaching on my personal space than I may previously have been like going to Tesco's last year during the height of the pandemic, um, like last Easter, genuinely felt like being in Shaun of the Dead, where you're looking at everybody coming towards you as like this kind of existential threat. How about you, Mark? Oh, um, for me, it was the George Romero. I mean, classics, the, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. So, uh, yeah, I, 
What was bizarre was I used to have nightmares about zombies even before I'd seen the movies. And then when I saw um, Day of the Dead, it was like, oh, my God, that's what I've been dreaming about for the last 10 years. So it was kind of like a <laughs> nostalgia almost. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, and the George Romero ones, I think, are the classic ones. They are the, the lumbering kind of, although by the end, by the third one, they're getting slightly more intelligent. And I know there's a fourth, fifth, and sixth movie now as well or something. Before, yes, I think I was always aware of there being something kind of scary about, you know, about the fact that they would infect you and then this kind of viral element. And I went also when the pandemic started, I went back to watch Rabid, which is also about that sort of pandemic. But instead of being zombies, people are turned into like ragers. And there was the thing like the vaccine passports were in there and all this sort of stuff. But what what scared me about the pandemic isn't so much rethinking about the zombies. It's rethinking about the general public's awareness of responding to them. We know now that if there was a real zombie outbreak, half the population would be going, oh, I don't believe the zombies. <laughs> and they'd be getting bitten <laughs> and walking up to them and going, you don't exist, do you? It's all just a, it's all just a conspiracy. It's a, it's a scamdemic as they're being chewed apart. And I think now, I think any future zombie movies are going to have to take into consideration the fact that actually people are a lot more stupid than we always, when, when we realised previously, really. Anyway, so yeah, um, so Shaun of the Dead 2, of course. And also, I think as well, and also um, uh, Mary in her notes mentioned Doom. And uh, that was the very first video game I ever played. I spent a lot of my job at Wolverhampton Uni, my first job at Wolverhampton. Oh, okay, it's all right now. They can't fire me. Playing Doom. (laughs) Because it was like computers. I've not seen computers before or the internet or anything like that. It was like the mid-90s. And um, yeah, it was... Hashtag apologies, Wolverhampton University. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they got their money out of me. Money's worth eventually, I should think. I see, for me, it's uh, zombies. It's zombies in games and my quintessential zombies because they are the ultimate... If you're a game developer and you want to messily kill as many things as possible, the only way you can really get away with it these days is by making it be zombies. Because, you know, the uh, kind of the pop culture acceptable kind of um, people that you can mow down throughout the years has been really shrinking since the 80s. I mean, it used to be that anybody who looked vaguely foreign around the years was kind of an acceptable kind of, uh, you know, target for some sort of bloodthirsty movie or video game. And then, yeah, as people's kind of thinking has obviously developed, uh, subsequently people have gone, actually, do you know what? Uh, Having these that are in any way kind of like, you know, relatable to somebody in real life is actually a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, And particularly with the world going down the toilet as it is, something that any video game developer can dream up is probably actively happening somewhere in the globe right now. So yes, uh, zombies are the last bastion of uh, hordes that you can mow down uh, without too much guilt with a machine gun. And even less guilt with um, zombie Nazis, Nazi zombies, like Blood Rain. Oh, yep, Call of Duty, Nazi zombies, yep. (laughs) Well, we also did talk about the boss level as well, the boss level zombie. We should talk about boss levels. Yeah, so I mean, the boss level. I mean, I I confess, I played all those games, you know, Castle Wolfenstein. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and there you do get to shoot. You get you, you do get to kill Hitler, which is always a plus. Um, Robo the, Hitler. Yes. So it's it's the boss level's uh, monster is the hardest one to defeat, and you just keep shooting and shooting and shooting, and you have to really use the um, the BFG which is not the big friendly giant in this context, um, to defeat the boss level monster. And and I think that I don't want to face a boss level zombie in real life. And, you know, I don't mind trying to get them on a game. But if it comes to our classrooms where we're trying to defeat a boss level zombie, 
let's try to just keep them out of the classroom. I'm realised we're now going to have to try and circle back to what the BFG against our boss level zombie is at the end. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll well, look that one. Well, also, the, <laughs> also the worst thing about boss levels is not just that you've got the boss, the big scary monster. It's like there's a pause, and then they send out all their minions, and you have to defeat the minions before mm. you can go back to defeating the boss, and that's incredibly frustrating. But so satisfying when you finally do defeat the boss level monster. I could imagine, yeah. I'm going to give you the radio-friendly version of the BFG. It's a big flipping gun. <laughs> Thank you, Mary, because we've actually we've never done a curse on this podcast before. So oh, that's, uh, you've, helped, you've helped. Oh, Mark. Oh, you've spoiled it. I'll put an explicit tag on iTunes. Okay, so we've done uh, zombies and boss levels. Uh, let's just talk about learning styles very quickly. So... Learning styles have been around in some way, shape or form since kind of the late 1960s, but they've kind of been evolving since then. And if anything, actually uh, unpicking the history of them turns out to be a little bit challenging uh, because they've been sort of built upon and built upon and built upon um, kind of like a a castle made of sandcastles made of other sandcastles until it's gotten to sort of relatively recently the top of the pyramid and people have realised that learning styles may not have quite the solid foundation that everybody assumed. The basic tenets of which are that um, learners can basically fall into, um, they can be uh, visual, auditory, uh, read writing, uh, or kinesthetic. So they they learn best either through the visual sort of medium, uh, through listening, through um, reading and writing material, or by uh, Lego, by just uh, by by touching and feeling and caressing uh, what they're learning, which I suppose, depending on what your profession is, uh, could be quite bad but yeah so that's a very brief thing so yeah who wants to kind of uh, expand on that very poor introduction to learning styles um well when i think about learning styles and the thing that makes them quite tricky um, and there's loads of different models with different labels and they all present themselves as if this is the absolute truth some scientific basis to it and there isn't actually any scientific basis to it but the idea is that as teachers what we're meant to do is to identify each student's individual learning style, that each person has a fixed style that they can't change, and that we should teach visual learners with pictures and the auditory learners with audio recordings, podcasts, and so on. In a sense, it's been a positive development in recent years that people have started talking about learning preferences rather than styles, because people can have a preference. It just, it just doesn't mean that that necessarily helps them to learn better. But the application of the concept hasn't really changed that much. Yeah, and it's kind of it's to say that the 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 theory is ubiquitous would be a bit of an understatement. It's um, something that is, I think, still in many cases being actively taught, despite the fact that the kind of the popular conversation around it is basically that it's you know not that <laughs> uh, the the science doesn't support it uh, in in kind of the form in which it's taught. Uh, and it's something, unfortunately, which uh, which I'd say continues to propagate and be used in classrooms. Uh, I saw it uh, relatively recently on a job advert uh, at a different university. Uh, was that one of the uh, the prerequisites was must have a, an understand thorough understanding of learning styles? Yeah, I've worked on a couple of PG caps where people have mentioned learning styles, and also, yeah, I had a friend stay with me while she was studying her um, P- PGCE, and. I was looking at some of the work she was doing and she'd been on her teaching practice, had been given the class and this was the school she was at, not the PGCE people. 
this is the class, and the and then next to each name was a V and A and R or a K, and it was like this is their preferred learn, this is their learning Ooh. style, and this is how you then construct your lesson is being aware of these different learning styles of these different students. So this was the before she'd walked into the classroom, she'd had each individual member of her class put into a little box for her to teach with within. And it was like, you can't do this. You can't do this. You go, oh, I have to because it's what the school said. I'm going, this is bullshit. But, you know, um, I mean, that was 10 years ago or so, but 15 years ago, but it, it could still be the same thing going well, on. I, th- I think it's still I think it's still an active conversation because I've got um, sort of no uh, couple of people who uh, who teach or are otherwise involved in education. It's still part of, it's still it's still part of, of practice in, in quite a few schools. And I think one of the things we've not mentioned really so far is that we're, we're talking about it from the educator's perspective. Um, in that it's kind of you know putting uh, people into into these sort of various bins, but it's communicated in many cases to the student as well, which brings with it its own set of problems. <laughs> in when you're telling a person, oh well, actually you learn by you're kind of uh, putting a person in a box. But I'm jumping ahead of myself in getting to some of uh, the difficulties and challenges that this or problems I should say that uh, that this raises. So we've very briefly introduced learning styles, um, and I guess we'll get into some of the beef uh, with these. In a bit. Is there anything else we need to talk about with learning styles before we move on to newer myths? I thought it might be useful to mention that learning styles is different from additional learning needs or specific mm. learning differences. So if you've got somebody in your module in your class who has a visual impairment or dyslexia or something like that, or a student, sometimes students need to have a certain learning delivered a certain way, that's a different thing. There is obviously evidence to support that. These are authentic additional learning needs. And it could be for social anxiety, visual impairment, dyslexia, autism spectrum, et cetera. So we as teachers need to make reasonable adjustments for that. And what I found quite useful as a way to open up opportunities to make the teaching more inclusive is to use universal design for learning, UDL, Mm. which you guys are probably familiar with that. It's got um, the ethos is you build the inclusion into the learning design so that you give students a couple of options, not a dozen, but maybe two, you know, two or three for how different means of carrying out the learning activity. And that's different from labeling students. That's more giving them the agency to choose, okay, I need to learn this way. And the you build the inclusion into the learning design rather than labeling your students with categories. Mm. And there's some strength to being more multimodal with your teaching. So if you're presenting lots and lots and lots of text, it's quite a good idea to have some images to go with that. To you know, there's there's we talked earlier, I think, in another episode about spaced learning, which is about bringing in a kinesthetic element just because it breaks it up and means that you're not having to focus for too long the only the advantages i've seen of this learning styles thing is that if you're thinking oh i haven't addressed all my audio learners audio learners you may put some more audio stuff in or all my visual learners might be something visual it's it's not that you've got one quarter of your class or whatever who will benefit from that all of your students will benefit from that because you've actually taken a different approach with some things so you know the more angles you attack an idea at the more likely it is to stick with somebody it's this idea that people are fixed and um and also the same for all subjects you might actually prefer graphs for something and text for something else it doesn't mean to say you're a visual learner necessarily it's just that you are you know you you have different approaches to learning different things and the more that they're addressed the better really 
Absolutely. You make the learning experience richer for all of the students and give everybody increased opportunities to really internalize, understand, and internalize and remember that material. And that's different from labeling people with a mm. learning style. But could still accidentally happen for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Is there a name for it? I feel like accidental multimodality in teaching. Yeah, it's called accidental like- multimodality. <laughs> okay, cool. I just wondered if there was like a name for it, like a pedagogic name with like an logical on the end or something. Well, no, there's no. dual coding. Dual coding. Oh, there we go. See? Uh, yeah. Okay, sorry. I shouldn't have taken the piss. You mock me, Mark. And there's Ma- <laughs> Mary knows her pedagogy, unlike Doctor of Education and Teller of Seniorness. Well, if, if, <laughs> if I've got an opportunity to either, you know, take the piss or actually contribute something <laughs> useful, which one am I going to go for? Well, yeah, quite. <laughs> Oh man, we need to have um, like some sort of uh, epic uh, kind of pedagogic smackdown at some point where we're just like throwing. We get like a couple of um, uh, sort of pedagogic experts on and throw you into the pit. Where it's like I have a theory, and you got to like describe that theory in thirty seconds. Oh, he makes it through round one. Ding 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 ding. You know, um, really, really get the juice flowing. We could get we could serve popcorn and beer and we'd be great. sell tickets. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd watch it. Oh, maybe that, maybe, should we, we bin our playful learning bid mark and, and set up a ring instead? Um, anyway, what was I? Ah, yes. So, uh, yeah, I think we've kind of we've covered uh, learning styles sort of enough for the, at this point. Neuromyths, we should probably just define what we're talking about when we're talking about a neuromyth. Yeah, well, I think neuromyths are co- those common beliefs that we have about learning and teaching that are often repeated, but somehow not supported by evidence. So um, this is where I think the cognitive science provides a really nice corrective based on studies that can be repeated, replicable studies um, built up over, especially the last 15 years, I would say. Some of the neuromyths are demonstrably false. Some of them are, you know, sound plausible, but there isn't any evidence to support them. So we don't really know that they're false, but we don't have any evidence that they're true. And then other ones can be built around that grain of truth, but maybe that idea gets oversimplified and distorted and repeated, um, sort of like that game we used to call telephone when we were children, so that in the end, by the time you know it's gotten twisted and then it can lead to poor teaching practices, whereas if you look at the original source, it's more nuanced and could still be useful. I've got an example of that, which isn't quite a pedagogic one, but you've probably heard the one about we only ever use 10% of our brains. Yes, mm-hmm. that's one. <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorites, as much that's as anything, one. because it made it all the way to being a half decent movie, uh, Lucy. Like, I think it was like that was the hook for the movie Lucy, was that they managed to get this lady to use 100% of her brain, and then she's basically God. Well, no, where it comes from, actually, was somebody did the maths around the, 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 technically the storage capacity of the brain and the rate at which you can fill your brain. And oh. yeah, over a lifetime. I think that's where he came from. So overall, but again, this could be another neuromyth. So I'm not sure. But again, it's yeah, it's complete nonsense. The left hand, right hand brain thing is also complete nonsense. You know, and yeah. so we hear that all the way through different kinds of neuromyth things. So yeah, and I think some of these could start off as like lies to children. You know, like we talked about, which is this is an oversimplification to get a point across. And then people then just forget that it's an oversimplification in order to get a point across, or they forget the metaphor or whatever. And, and also, uh, what's another good one? Um, we remember 10% of what we hear, we remember 20% of what we say, and we remember 40% of what we do or something. And again, that's completely made up. 
I said, yeah. you just made that up now because I've never heard that before ever. Are mm. you starting a new neuromyth, Mark? No, no, that's a that's a just you see it as a pyramid, and it's like this is what this is how much of what we remember, and this is how much of, of what we hear. I'm sure you're. It's that's a it's a, a real th- it's a real thing, real Mark. Thing. You're absolutely right, but sometimes but it is not substantiated. There's no evidence to support it at all. And you see the different diagrams. Sometimes they have different labels on mm. the pyramid. You know, um, but I think I think there's. I w- if you guys like card games, this sort of gets back to another side of the pop culture. There's a lovely set of cards created by the Oregon State University about neuromyths, and it includes the the left brain, right brain, the ten percent. It includes the pyramid. Um, it includes. I don't know if we're giving away the answer to the question, but um, learning styles is in that deck of cards. Some of them are actual facts. Some of them are myths. Um, but I highly recommend that set of materials. Um, oh, we'll have to link to it in the show notes, I think. We will do, yeah. I had another one I wanted to mention, because this is really, I think, important for us, where we want to promote active learning. There's been some really useful uh, evidence from cognitive science that shows that students' perception versus of learning versus the actual learning is often just exactly the opposite. So um, DeLaurier did a really good study, which we will put in the show notes, about feeling of learning versus actual learning. Dunlosky and others have done loads of research about different learning strategies. And the ones the students say they prefer are often, surprise, surprise, the least effective ones. Yeah, so we can direct people to have a look. I like that because... Of course, it's going to be the ones that challenge them less are going to be on balance ones that they prefer. Where there was a piece of research done in the OU, uh, uh, Rebecca Galley, I think, and, and others, uh, which was around collaborative learning and students basically going, I hate collaborative learning, but hmm. the students who participate in the collaborative learning had better outcomes. Yes. <laughs> Bingo. Learning style started off with something fairly straightforward with um, Honey and Mumford and all that, didn't they? Where, But these were meant to be not so much a box to put people in, but it was like, here's a series of questions you can ask about yourself to, to just think about as, as a point of reflection and see how you change and evolve and how your ideas might vary and all that sort of thing. Was this the, oh no, I'm getting mixed up with Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs, the same sort of thing. And they were never meant to be categorical, you are this sort of person. It was meant to be, you know, let's explore who you are and by asking you a set of questions and about how you might feel about things. But like mm. Myers-Briggs, the Honey and Mumford, whatever, all of these things, they all end up being evolving. Bastardized over time. Yeah, and prescript, turned into these like prescriptive categorization things rather than a tool you might want to play with. And Kolb's learning cycle is, is related to that as well, quite related to Honey and Mumford's um, model where he started off saying you start off with this and then you do that and then you do that as you're learning but then somehow it gets transformed into you are either an active experimenter or you are a reflective observer etc and it's that it's that categorization it's that rigidness of that structure that i think um is counterproductive for us really and and of course the really worrying thing is that when HR people get hold of these things. They start running psychometric tests on applicants. I've heard of some pe- some places will actually filter out the applications they send on to the, rec- the actual recruiting department because they say, well, you know, you don't want these sorts of people. You want, 
you know, um, you don't want INTP people. You want, I don't know, R2D2 type people or whatever the numbers are. And it's, and yeah, and that which is horrendous because it's all bullshit. I, um, I mentioned this in another thing was, um, I always fill in C-A-C-A-C-A-C-A as the answers to those. Uh, it's really scatological, but it's basically It's like how childish. But I figure if they're going to take this seriously, I don't want to work for them. Um, so I think we've got all the major components of our question assembled. Uh, let's bring them all together in the second part of the show where we try and answer it. Part two, the answer. So, back to our question. Are learning styles the boss-level zombie of neuromyths? Well, I would say in a word, yes. In... And that's the end of the show. So, <laughs> you can it to us on... <laughs> But if you want to find out why... <laughs> stay, stay tuned. After <laughs> some words from our sponsors. <laughs> Sorry, Mary. <laughs> that's all right. Um, the biggest challenge to this myth uh, really came in 2009 when Pashler and his team did a meta study looking at the various learning style models that were out there, all of these different models that we've talked about and more, and found that although students may have preferences, there's no actual evidence that they can be categorized by learning styles, and there's no evidence that they learn better when the teacher matches the teaching approach to the the presumed learning style or the student's preference. They might say, student might say, I'm a visual learner, I need pictures, but pictures don't necessarily make that student learn better. So, and this is regardless of what system is being used. They, 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 it was a meta study. So they looked at all the research done to that date. And then they said, okay, if you really want to do a study that proves learning styles, here's what you need to do. Here's how you have to generate the right kind of evidence that could give you um, an authoritative decision on this. And people have tried to replicate those studies or design studies with the right kind of gathering the right kind of data and analyzing the data the right way. And there's almost nothing that shows that there's evidence in support of learning styles. So this idea that they can that students might have that about their own learning style could discourage students from doing the things that really would help them to learn better. That's where the real damage mm. is. You know, if I'm a visual learner, I'm going to say, well, I can, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to listen to a lecture, I'm not going to listen to a lecture or just read the lecture notes. And then, and then that, that damages the learning for that person. And it could also, I suppose, I mean, that could potentially switch somebody off learning. I mean, if for example, a person gets, let's say a person gets categorized against their preferences, because we said, obviously the, the learning style and the learning preference um two of two very different things and let's say a person prefers to learn a certain way uh, but may get categorized in another that's totally against how they um how they engage with the world i mean for, for potential variety reasons perhaps even for edia reasons um that could really screw you up yeah absolutely and it could it would bring about that self-defeating mindset and then and then the students just give up and don't pursue higher education for example and that's where there's a real loss yeah, and I think I mean for the boss level of it as well. I think the the boss leveliness. I mean, actually, Mark referenced earlier um, the little minions that the boss spawns. This is a prevalent like the uh, the ubiquity of uh, learning styles is 
enormous. Uh, it, is, it is a myth that is propagated not just through teaching, but also through students. Um, I saw some uh, survey responses uh, last week to something that we'd asked uh, within the university about a particular type of activity. Uh, and student, more, I think more than one student responded as a visual learner. And I thought, oh, okay, that looks familiar. And yeah, it seems that people do sort of have taken this idea forwards into into higher education, which, you know, it may, it may in some respects be harmless, but in the other, it's kind of, it's, it's the ideas continue to be there. And I, I wonder if it's because it's such a, it's such a nice and easy story to tell and, and to tell other people. It's, it's a nice, easy way. I mean, obviously, this podcast is all about taking very complex ideas uh, and boiling them down to basic meaninglessness uh, of a few sound bites, uh, very much our stock in trade. But at the same time, we're, we're not kind of um, advising that people base their whole lives on the nonsense that Mark and I spout, uh, whereas, um, yeah, people's, people's lives and educations are a bit more important than that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think it's the um, uh, trying to think of the metaphor again. It's the way it keeps on regenerating. I mean, why it is so powerful in the first place? And I think that's it: is that you run something on learning styles, everybody will flock to the thing that you're selling because it is. It provides a nice, simple answer. You know, people are rushed off their feet. Education and understanding pedagogy. Yeah, there's some straightforward things you can find out, but on the whole, it's well. It depends if you do it this way, and you're you know, and this and this, you've got a better chance of this working. But there's no guarantees because it's so dependent on a whole set of other things. You're not running a lab experiment. It's you know, there's a mass of other factors. And all you can really say about anything, apart from some of the more basic cognitive things, is that, um, you know, try it and it probably will have a better chance of working than not working. And that's not great for a lot of people, you know, particularly if you're from a more of a hard science or positivist end of things. You want some nice, straightforward, this is what it is, A, B, C, D, V, A, R, K, whatever. And you've got something concrete to go away and hold on to and start implementing without having to engage with the whole nuanced, flaky, interpretivist thing that's going on when people are trying to learn. So I think that's that was what makes it so difficult to kill because people want something like that. Yeah. And they will keep on feeding it because that's what they that's what they need, even though it's not doing them any good as educators, because it's giving them you know, people would rather have a wrong answer than no answer, I think. Yeah, it, it's the illusion of a concrete metacognitive manual for yourself, which yeah, is why it's such your, an appealing idea. And for your practice, you know, you've got, yeah. you've got, uh, you've been asked to change your teaching. You've got like an, an hour to rewrite the next session. Oh, I'll do, oh, oh I'll make it a bit more, vi- well, yeah, actually, no, make it a bit more visual is a good idea, but it's like, oh, I'll do it because of the visual learners. Then that's like, you know, that's something that you can do, pick up really quickly without really having to engage with what's going on. People love a simplified answer. They love the black and white binary nature as well. If it's either this or it's that. But life is not really like that. And I think this whole discussion about learning styles is very timely. We're talking about this this week. I saw two different big discussions in Twitter this week about learning styles. And, um, and sometimes people are coming back and saying, yeah, but what about teaching them to their real learning styles? Like, the evidence doesn't support that people have a real learning style. So um, it's much better to use the real evidence from cognitive science that using a variety, the multimodal teaching is effective. You know, there's certain ways you can use text and images together, that there's cognitive 
science evidence that supports this actually helps to communicate the message. Or if you do it a different way, you've got too much cognitive load and then the, then the students have a harder time following the idea. There's evidence for that, but there just isn't evidence for these learning styles per se. Okay, so we've established that learning styles are the boss-level zombie of neuromyths, but how the darn heck are we going to beat that boss to claim that, what do you get at the end of Doom? To get off of Mars and get back to your rabbit. Genuinely, you're getting back to your rabbit in the original Doom. Oh. Uh, it, it gets referenced in, uh, in the modern version of Doom. It's, it's really awesome. Great game, by the way. Play it. We should do an episode on Doom at some point. Sorry, back to the thing. Anyway. All rabbits. So, or rabbits. Yeah, we'll do an entire episode just on bunnies. Which pedagogy is a bunny's little fluffy tail? Um, <laughs> so we've established that learning styles uh, are the boss level, zombie, boss level zombie of neuromyths. But how are you taking that boss down? What is your BFG or your BFGs? Let's answer that in the third part of the show where we give you some practical tips for your own practice. Part three, practical tips for your own teaching. So, folks, um, yeah, how are we attacking this uh, boss-level zombie of neuromyths, learning styles? What's your BFG? Well, my BFG is evidence. And I think, you know, there's a, there is a big pile of evidence and lots of material that's aimed at students as well as at teachers that um, is based on cognitive science so that you are encouraging students to do something actively um, with their learning, your your you're doing space practice, you're doing retrieval practice, all of that stuff, making connections between the new ideas and their prior knowledge, coming up with concrete examples, all of that stuff where there is solid evidence. And that's stuff you can do with all of your students. You're not saying this student will do this and that student will do that. So that was what I would say, cognitive science. And, and we will give you some of the uh, links to some useful articles um, in the show notes. And Mark? Um, I guess, yes, that's the main thing. But also, I suppose, taking out the minions when you can. So, you know, it's about addressing every time somebody says learning styles, you go, you do realize those are complete bullshit. Or, you know, um, uh, and just, you know, I mean, I've, I've not always been um, consistent about this. I remember somebody offered to make me a co-author on a paper they were writing and it was about learning styles on and it was a learning styles analysis of a project we were doing and i i went okay then and i should have said no i'm taking my name off that because you've mentioned learning styles but it's like i can't offend them by saying no you're talking complete ass because you're my boss you know and so there's things like that that you know it's maybe trying to stick to our guns in situations like that and um you know even if they're not big guns um and just saying you know actually no you can't do that that that's shite and you know if you're running a pg cap and one of your one of your academics mentions learning styles in their assignment um fail them <laughs> make them reset the course because they obviously haven't done their scholarship element properly you know that would that's the stuff like that just just be a bit i think we need to be a bit more vigorous about enforcing that kind of rigor on our colleagues so mary solutions a bfg and yours is very much a minigun just yeah taking them out when the when they appear yeah yeah i mean obviously the only way to really defeat a boss is to is to do both at the right time but um but yeah this is why it's that's this is why they're tricky stop them respawning that's the thing (laughs) i think for me um i guess if we're going down the weapons route i suppose mine would be a time grenade (laughs) i think one of the reasons that it's so prolific and why um it is so contagious 
is because of a fundamental lack of time um, at particularly primary and secondary education where it's most kind of, I'd say, probably used the most and ironically also I think the most needed for people to engage both in keeping up to date with the contemporary conversation around pedagogy, but also to properly have time to get to know their own learners. Um, I think a solution to this is twofold. It's having, giving, making sure all of your educators at all levels of the education system actually have time to refresh their practice, um, re-familiarise themselves with the practice and see what's going on in the world. Because, I mean, as I'm sure anybody uh, in the UK knows, and I'm sure the situation in America is probably far worse because it generally is in most aspects of things. You know, teachers work ridiculous hours. Um, and I know they get some pretty sweet holiday, but trust me, my mum was a primary school teacher and they spend most of their time marking and lesson planning, even in the holidays. But, you know, there is there is not the time for them to to kick back and check out, you know, check out edu Twitter and see what the contemporary discussion is and what articles are being shared, what the latest research is. And that's, you know, that's really important if people want to be able to say that they're maintaining their practical uh, knowledge. Um, and also, yeah, it's uh, it's a quick answer. It's an easy answer to a hard question, which is how do I reach mm. this person? How do I most effectively teach this person? And unfortunately, probably the best way of doing that isn't by giving them a simple psychometric test. It's by spending time with them and getting to know what makes them tick and then being able to spend time to better uh, t- tweak your teaching uh, to suit what's going to work best for them. Yeah. yeah so, really, yeah, a really time grenade. Well, I would say that's a really good point, but wrong weapon. Double barrel shotgun. Really, have you got a better weapon? Well, a time grenade sends people back in time, so that then they, the, so that the Earth's not there anymore, and then they freeze to death in the in the loneliness of space. That's how time grenades work. Damn, that's bleak. I know. Well, Strontium Dog is a very bleak strip. That's what you really need: something like an ocarina of time, which sort of slows it down and gives you another go at it, and things like that. Is that? Yeah, but we've. I, I suppose. I suppose. To be honest, I. I already goofed when i went away from the doom weapons because <laughs> you, know, you guys had you had you had doom you had good doom weapons whereas mine was just sort of a there's often bit of a though there's a, there's a there's a power up where you can slow time down isn't there with a lot of these oh things. yeah bullet time it would be bullet time bullet time that's, that's it yeah. yeah although i wouldn't mind a time grenade that took us back to before people were even talking about learning styles <laughs> well, you just like teleport back to the 1960s and just slap people like no no, stop that. No. Stop that. It's not it's not true. It really isn't true. Look at the evidence. You get and to then, you get to like break the first connection where someone's like, have you heard? And you're like, no. <laughs> Butterfly effect. Oh that would be a great zombie movie though, isn't it? Is the zombie holocaust and it's all over and done with and nearly everyone's a zombie and the last few people just go back in time to find patient alpha, patient zero, and stop them from becoming a zombie in the first place. Oh, I bet that's been done, hasn't it? Oh, That's the solution. If if only we can do it, and then we'd nip it in the bud. Yeah. So yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you have access to a time machine, uh, get in touch. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Actually, got a couple of other things on the list while we're while we're out as well. I uh, don't know if you've heard about Harambe, but I've got um, some pretty strong feelings on on what should have happened then. Brexit as well. We could go back um, maybe to when was Nigel Farage? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Should probably keep the libels for a minimum. <laughs> well, wouldn't you starting with that? I mean, like, there's no end, is there? Really? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, we, we but you know the but, but you've all seen. Well, I mean, you've seen the butterfly effect, and things go wrong, don't they? When you try and fix one thing, everything else gets worse. I know, but I'd be like, oh no, it's hover cars outside. How terrible! How awful! Oh, my my wallet's too heavy. It's too full of high value pounds. 
What's an awful... Oh, let me just... Oh, I've not switched the lights off in this room. And that's because energy is so cheap, because we solve nuclear fusion. Um, like, you know, we'd be, we'd, be, we'd be suffering from living in the best timeline, as opposed to this dark, miserable one, which we've somehow come to inhabit. Sorry, this is not going in. My God, Mike. <laughs> um, we need something to lift us up. Uh, <laughs> well, you see, I think that we could edit that out and we'd all be a lot happier. <laughs> oh, we could go back in time and edit Go back in time five minutes before we started this bit of the <laughs> conversation. Before I started talking. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. I mean, I, I will literally get this when I get the edit. I'll get to go back yeah, in time exactly, and be like, yeah, that miserable? Yeah. Who's that miserable <laughs> bastard with my voice? Oh, dear, it's me. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we've uh, we've both answered our question uh, and given you the the means, the arsenal, the literal arsenal, uh, with which to slay that boss-level zombie uh, learning styles. Before I uh, bring us to a close in the show, Mary, is there anything that you would like to plug? Well, one thing is not something that I created, um, but it's the Oregon State University Neuromyth uh, card game. That you can that you can get from them, and we'll give you the details and the um, show notes. And then the other thing is something that I create that I, you alluded to at the beginning, Mike, which is the weekly resource roundup. And so, if you want to find articles that have the evidence base about any aspect of pedagogy, learning, and teaching, or online events that you might want to join into, or upcoming Pedagogzilla podcasts, for example. Hey. Um, yay. This kind of stuff. Um, we collect this once a week and put it onto the Learning and Teaching Enhancement Unit blog and it's and uh, advertise it through Twitter as the weekly resource roundup. And you know how earlier I mentioned uh, spent taking a couple of hours each week just to stay up to date with the latest research? This is very much the way to do it. Mary's done all the hard work for you. No scouring articles and websites and journals. It's all there, one place, one stoppy shoppy. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter. You can reach me at pedagodzilla. Mark? I'm at Mark Childs. And Mary? Uh, at Mary Jacob, T-E-L-1. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Goodbye now. Bye. And You can't wave on the podcast, Mary. I know, waving at you guys, even though it's not... I, I, I'll, I'll, try and, I'll, let, I'll let it in, the sound of your hand going... Yeah, do that. Or something. 